Well, welcome again to Bentonville Community Church. I'm excited to share God's Word with you today. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're continuing the sermon series called Different. And, and what 1 Peter is saying to these Christians that are scattered throughout Asia Minor, they're suffering, they're experiencing some persecution. Peter is saying to them, this world is not your home. You're part of a different kingdom. You're part of a different kingdom. You might, your residency might be in the Roman Empire, but the kingdom that you're part of is different, and it's breaking in. And, and so Peter is writing this letter to teach this group of believers how to live in this world, but, but not be of this world. Uh, I want to begin by, by trying to jog your memory. Some of you are going to remember this. Some of you weren't around for this. But I think in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, the Michelin Tire Company ran this ad for a long time. They might still be running it. I don't know. But I remember the ad running on TV. There was a little tire, and it had a baby in it. And the tire would levitate around to different places and all throughout the city and the country. And the baby was just sitting there in the tire. And the tagline, I bet you can finish it for me. Michelin said, buy our tires because so much is riding on your tires. Remember that? It, it really drove the point home that when we get in our cars, our family is there. And, and so if you want to ensure maximum safety, you better get the Michelins because so much is riding on your tires. I would say this, and I think what Peter is saying to the churches there in Asia Minor is there's a lot riding on this. You're called to be the church. You're called to be the people of God. And there's a lot riding on this. Remember, Peter is at the focal point of the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter two, uh, 1 and 2 tells us that Jesus got the disciples together and he said, wait for the gift that I'm going to give you. The Holy Spirit's going to come and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. Jesus takes this mission, this thing that he had worked on all of his life and this thing that was now validated through his cross and resurrection. He takes this thing that God is doing, this new chapter in salvation history, and he gives it to these 11, now 11 disciples. And he says, you guys are in charge. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, some really special things are going to happen. Just a few days earlier, like 50 days earlier, they had all deserted him except one. And now he's saying, boy, when the Holy Spirit comes on you because of the resurrection, you're, you're going to be different. And so I'm giving you this mission. So go be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the very ends of the earth. Jesus was saying to those disciples, a lot is riding on this. And so they do just that. They go and they wait and the day of Pentecost happens and then Peter who 50 days earlier had denied Jesus, now stands in the middle of Jerusalem. There's people gathered there from all over the world, and he preaches through the power of the Holy Spirit. He preaches that Jesus is the Christ. Now he's raised to new life, and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And they said, well, what should we do? He said, repent and believe the good news. And 3,000 people were added to the church that day. What the book of Acts tells us is that the people that were gathered there from all across the world, they were there for the festival of Pentecost. Well, then they went out. They'd been changed by the gospel, and they began to start communities of faith. The book of Acts tells how the church spread and how the gospel spread. And now here's Peter. In the book of 1 Peter, this is 25, maybe 30 years later. He's writing to those churches 
and his message is the same. There's a lot riding on this. Your, your place in the world, your mission that Jesus has given to you, it is very important. And, and so it's important that we understand how to live and that we're going to live differently. And so let's look at, at chapter 2. We've made it to verse 11. This entire series is just walking through the book of 1 Peter. And so let's, let's revisit verse 11 that Henry read for us. Peter writes, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires. These sinful desires, they wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among pagans, that is people who don't believe, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Let's just unpack this a little bit and, and, and stay here for a little bit. Peter again reminds these Christians that they're foreigners and they're exiles. This world is not their home, but they are bringing, they're part of a different kingdom. And as they live faithfully in this kingdom, they are bringing it to the world. And he reminds them of the vocation that they have to be the light of the world. And, and if we will live faithfully into this vocation, our lives have the potential to transform people who don't believe, i.e. pagans, if we'll live this way. And so what's the first step in making sure that we live according to the ways of Christ? Peter says these sinful desires, the Greek word there is sarks or flesh. These desires of the flesh, in, in popular culture, it was common to just indulge them. Whatever you want, whatever you think, whatever you desire, indulge that. Let's even have a festival and we'll create a God to indulge in all of those things. And Peter's saying, no, we're called to live differently. We have to abstain from sinful desires. We have to bring the desires of our life into alignment with the desires of Christ. And, and he, he warns against this. And, and he says, when we indulge in these impulses of our flesh, when they go unrestrained in our life, when we consume whatever we want to consume, or when we say whatever we want to say, or when we sleep with whoever we want to sleep with, or when we live just however we want to live, it wages war against your soul. You see, there's a vision for who you can become in Christ. You can be the kind of person that reflects the character and the nature of Christ to the world, but if you allow these sinful desires to have their way in your life, it will derail that vision and it will prevent you from becoming the person that God is destined for you to become. And so they, it wages war against your soul. And so this first step in being the people that God's called us to be, Peter saying we're going to have to surrender those to the Lordship of Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit live a different way. I'm going to make a, a, a never statement. It's rare that I would stand before you and say anything that begins with never. But I, I, I'm going to make a never statement. I'm going to tell you what has never happened and what never will in my ministry. I, I have never had someone call me, and I never will, but I have never had someone call me and say, Pastor, uh, I need to make an appointment with you. I need to spend some time with you. Can we get together and I have never had them come into my office and say, hey, I just want to check in with you and, and let you know that uh, these things the Bible calls sin, these sinful desires, these sinful passions, uh, I just want you to know that I've indulged in, in all of them. I have every thought that I've ever had, every desire that I've ever had, 
I've just in, indulged that. I've engaged in that. Uh, I've made it a regular pattern for my life. I have lived selfishly. I have made life all about me. I have made every relationship in my life revolve completely around me and what I want and what I think is best. I've had no stop signs, no guardrails in my life. I have indulged in all kinds of sin. And I just want to stop by and tell you, it's going great. It's going great. Life could not be better. My marriage is good. My business is good. My family life is good. It's going great. Not going to happen. Never has happened. Never will happen because of what God's Word says is that when we live this way, it wages war against our soul. It wages war against this good vision of who we can become when we live the way Christ has called us to live. And so what I love about where Peter is going with this is saying, okay, for us to live into this vocation, to be the people God's called us to be, we're going to surrender these sinful desires to the Lordship of Christ. We're going to allow the Holy Spirit to sanctify our life and to make us more like Jesus. But it's not so that we can be these pristine little Christians sitting up on a shelf where God says, look at these Christians. Look how they have brought all of their sinful desires into alignment with the ways of Christ. It's not that God sets us up on a shelf, and, and, but God says, no, I'm setting you apart for a mission and for a purpose. Because you've been made holy, now I have a vocation for you, and that is to show an unbelieving world just how good this life in Christ is. And so Peter goes on to say, let your good deeds, let your good deeds be your testimony in the world. People who don't believe, i.e. pagans, they can do a complete 180 in their life, and they can give glory to God when Christ returns through your good deeds, through the way that you live your life. What Peter is saying to us is that the world will judge the validity of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. The world will judge the validity of the gospel by the testimony of your life. Let that sink in just for a moment. It doesn't matter how many church signs we have or how much advertising we take out on social media. The validity of the gospel, whether this is true, whether this is a good way to order our life it will be the world will judge that by the testimony of your life what you say what you do how you live did i mention there's a lot riding on this there's a lot riding on this it reminds me of this story this is an old story i've heard a few preachers tell it and, and, and you'll realize how old it is when I just give you one of the first details. But there was a, a new Nazarene pastor in town in a metropolitan area. Brand new pastor. He'd just come into town. And he had to run an errand. And so he decided to take the city bus. And so he gets on the city bus to, to run this errand. And when he gets to where he's going, he, he stops and he, and he pays the bus driver. That again tells you how old this story is. There wasn't a card to swipe or tap or any of that he pays the bus driver the bus fare and the bus driver gives him his change and as he's stepping off the bus he notices that the bus driver has given him two dollars more than than what he should have also tells you how old this story is because two dollars was kind of a lot of money then 
And the preacher immediately stops in his tracks, turns around, takes a step up to where the bus driver is and says, hey, oh, by the way, you gave me too much change. You made a mistake. And hands him the $2 back. And the bus driver looks at the brand new Nazarene preacher in town and, and says, no, I, I didn't make a mistake. I know who you are. I know you're new in town. And my wife has been asking me to go to church with her for years. And I just wanted to see what you would do today. I tell you what, preacher, I'll see you Sunday. I'll see you Sunday. Because the way you live your life, the decisions that you make, the choices that you make, is the testimony that confirms if the gospel is true. And so Peter envisions people who don't know God actually being transformed into those who give glory to God. This can happen. And here's where it happens. Not as much here, mainly out there. It's in your break rooms, in your neighborhoods, in your boardrooms, in your garages, in, in the places that you do business, when you take your grandkids to the park. It's in these public places that the testimony of our life will point people to Jesus. And so we are invited into this different kingdom. It's a different kingdom. It's a, it's a different way of life. We're in this world, but while we're in this world, we are the agents of this kingdom. And I love how John describes it in Revelation chapter 11. He says, the kingdom of this world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That's what happens when the people of God go out into the world. And they begin to, to live this out. So it happens in all these very public, common, ordinary, normal places. And so Peter gives three examples in the next few verses that happen. We're going to look at two of them. But he gives, he gives two examples of what this might look like. So let's jump into that. Here are some of the public places where the people of God are invited to live out their faith. Verse 13. Let's pick that up. Peter says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. And, and here, verse 17 is really the key to this. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. We'll come back to that. Verse 18. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you, do, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. I'm going to just pause right there. And we're going to unpack this just a little bit. As Peter touches on two everyday issues, everyday arenas of life that still affect us today. 
he mentions the world of politics and government. That's this business about honoring the emperor and the governors. And then he goes into a discussion about slaves, which really is a discussion about economics. Those two worlds intersect with our world every day. It would be impossible for any of us to, to go out into the world and live this Christian life without government and economics intersecting our life in, in some way. And so let's, let's hear what Peter is saying to these Christians in Asia Minor about, about how they live under Roman rule. What Peter seems to be saying is that these Christians, at least at this time and in this place, they're enjoying a, a certain amount of order and structure that happens under Roman rule. And so Peter is tapping into a principle that we see in other places in Scripture, Romans 13, for instance, where Paul, who is a Roman citizen, actually leverages the, the rights and privileges of being a Roman citizen for the gospel. And so Peter is, is, is very much in that perspective saying, here we are living in the relative order and safety of the Roman Empire. And so in that context, use those channels, use those means as a, as a way to, to live faithfully in, in the world. But one of the things that we have to recognize about interpreting these texts is that, that this is one of those passages where we have to do the work of, of asking ourselves the question, what, what was it like for the first century audience to hear this? What is the context of this? Because we have this amazing gift of Scripture. This is the Word of God. What we believe about this, this book from Genesis to Revelation, that it is the Word of God. It is inerrant in all things necessary to our salvation. It teaches us how to live. It teaches us how to be the people of God. And it was written over hundreds of years in lots of different contexts. And so we have to do a little bit of work this morning of saying, what is the original context? Who was Peter writing to? What was going on at that time? And is this a, a universal principle that Scripture is exalting for the people of God today? Or, or is this something contextual from which we can derive some value and, and use it to help order some of our situations? And the first thing we have to realize is that because this book is given to the people of God, the, if, if we're to say anything is doctrine or anything is a universal principle to live by, it has to meet the, these criteria. It has to be true for all people, in all places, at all times. All people, in all places, at all times. And so you read this thing that Peter says to the church scattered throughout Asia Minor. Honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. And, and, and the first thing we need to do is just ask ourselves the question of, if, what is it like to read that in different contexts? It's a little easier for us to read it because we live in a culture and in an environment where, for the most part, the government has been a the government has been an efficient way for Christians to go about their life together. It's been an efficient way for us to share the gospel and to live under the rule and reign of the United States of America. It's it's favorable to who we're called to be and what we're called to do. 
But remember, all places, all people at all times. And so the first question I think we should ask ourselves is, if you're a Christian in Russia, how do you read honor the emperor today? Which, by the way, let me back up. Depending on who occupies the White House, sometimes you read honor the emperor in one light or another. Sometimes we're like, yeah. And then sometimes we're like, right? But let's just take it all places, all people at all times. Honor the emperor. What if you're reading that in Russia and your emperor is bombing hospitals and killing civilians, senselessly waging a war, plunging the world into famine because he's going to bomb ships that are shipping grain into the Black Sea? How do you read honor the emperor? How do you read honor the emperor if you live in China? Where the emperor is systematically persecuting religious minorities. Where it's illegal to be a Christian. Where people are executed for being a dissident of the state. How do you read that if you are a Christian in China? How do you read honor the emperor if you are a Christian in Myanmar? Where the emperor is whoever has the most guns and the most bullets. It could be this person one day, and tomorrow it could be a completely different person. And you're a Christian in Myanmar, and you're trying to figure out what it means to faithfully live out the gospel. And you come to this passage in 1 Peter, and it says, honor the emperor. It's important, friends, that we read this in the full context of Scripture. And Scripture is not, Scripture offers many different perspectives on what it looks like to live in a geopolitical reality. For instance, we're in 1 Peter. We can just flip over. 1 Peter, where Peter's kind of lined up with Paul, and there's this kind of favorable view of Roman government. We can just flip over three pages, four pages, to the book of Revelation. And John is an exile of the Roman government. He's on the Isle of Patmos. It's 20 years later, after Peter wrote this to the Christians, And John has a very unfavorable opinion of the Roman government. In fact, he describes the emperor as a beast that rises up out of the sea. And this beast speaks all kinds of blasphemy against God. And this beast perpetuates persecution upon the people of God. In fact, John describes the Roman Empire not as something favorable to the people of God, not as a means to an end. John describes the Roman Empire as, well, I can't say that word in church, y'all. You're just going to have to go to Revelation 18 and read it for yourself. But it's a, a something of Babylon, okay? You just go read it. I mean, it's in the Bible, but I can't say it this morning because you'll, you'll send me an email. <laughs> and, and if you do, my email address is chad at bnaz.org, okay? Chad at bnaz.org. So John has this very unfavorable opinion of the Roman government. There's no honor the emperor there with John. In fact, let's go back to Exodus. What does it look like to be the people of God? Well, the emperor, the Pharaoh, is enslaving the people of God. And God has this plan to redeem them and to bring them into a land that is their own. And the emperor decides, you know what, there's too many Israelites. They're becoming too numerous, too vigorous. And so we're going to enact this genocide. 
all male baby boys are going to be thrown into the Nile River. He gives this command to the Hebrew midwives. Their names are Shifra and Puah. We don't know the name of the emperor, but the Bible tells us the names of the midwives. It honors them for what they did. They resisted the king's edict. They resisted the king's decree. They delivered the babies healthily to their mothers. And when they were brought in and the emperor, the pharaoh, said, Why are you not obeying my commands? They told what technically is a lie. They said, Oh, these Hebrew women, man, they give birth before we get there. They resisted the government and what the emperor wanted them to do. And God blessed them. And God honored their decision because they did the right thing. Are you familiar with the story of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? It's a great story in the Bible. I, I, I think you've probably heard it. But you probably know them by their Babylonian names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The king, the emperor, said, I'm going to play a song, and when I do, the people are going to bow down and worship this graven image that I've set up. And if you don't bow down and worship the graven image, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, no, this is not who we're called to be. We're going to resist what the emperor is calling us to do. And when everyone bowed, they stood. And sure enough, the king threw them into the fiery furnace. And where was God? With them in their resistance, honoring their defiance of the king's edict in the fiery furnace with them. And so Christians, what is Scripture saying? Scripture is saying that we're in this world and we're called to be different. And we have to have the wisdom and the discernment to know what it looks like to live our life in these public places. There are some times when the government is going to be a, a platform and it's going to be helpful in what we're trying to do for the gospel. But there are other times where it's going to be a hindrance and we're going to be called to resist. And so we have to read what, what Peter is saying here in the full context of, of Scripture. But the key is verse 17. As we discern this, as we figure out what this looks like in our public life, look at what Peter says. Show proper respect to everyone. That there is a way of going about this that is in line with the, with the way of Christ. That we show proper respect to, to everyone. So Peter's saying something about the world of government and politics. And then he gets into economics. If I haven't gotten on your, your toes yet, I'm sure I will hear. He gets into the world of economics and he, and he talks about slaves. At this time, 50% of the population were enslaved. They were an indentured servant of some kind. If you couldn't pay your, your bills, there were no bankruptcy laws. You had to sell yourself as an indentured servant. And so here's 50% of the population now selling themselves into slavery in order to pay their bills or to keep their family from being seized and thrown into prison. And so Peter is writing to these slaves and saying, sometimes your master is going to be harsh. Sometimes your master is going to be kind. But in the midst of all of that, um, we are, we're called to 
persevere and to look to Jesus. And we look to Jesus and, and how he and how he endured this through the power of God. This is not scripture justifying slavery. Although that text has been twisted and read in that way throughout history. But this is, is Peter saying, yes, you're in this institution. And yes, you're enslaved. And yes, it's a, it's a bad deal. But God is with you in the midst of that. And there's a way to live in, in the midst of that. And so there's, here's just two examples. Chapter 3, he'll start talking about households and how families are to live together. And, of course, we read that in context as well. But, but the point is, Christians, is that when, when Peter says, do you live such good lives among the unbelievers? He's saying in this world that is so often contrary to who we're called to be, we're called to live a different way. And in the 1950s, a theologian named Reinhold Niebuhr, he wrote a book called Christ and Culture. Published in 1951, and preachers are still reading it today. And one of the things he did was he talked about how Christians engage with the broader culture. And he said sometimes they, they take the position of against culture. There's, there's culture wars to fight, and there's things that we're against, and there's things that are contrary to the gospel. And so we're going to entrench ourselves. We're going to go to battle. We're going to be against culture. And we're going to fight everything in the public sphere that is against who God is calling us to be. But then Christians also take this position of Christ of culture, where, where the, 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 the currents of culture, the way things are moving, People in this camp find a way to merge those with the gospel and, and, and everything that is being embraced in culture can find some kind of expression in the gospel as well. And so one position is Christ against culture. The other is Christ of culture. And I think what Peter is saying is that, that there's, there's a better way. This is what Niebuhr also goes on to say. That there's a better way than to entrench ourselves against or to be co-opted by. We can find a different way, a better way. And where is that? It's in Jesus. Peter points us to Jesus. Look at verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseers of your soul." Here's Peter taking these texts from Isaiah. This is Isaiah 53, the song of the suffering servant. And, and, and Peter's saying, remember this story I taught you? Remember the picture that Isaiah gives us of the suffering servant? This is who Jesus is. This is how he endured in a world that was contrary to who he was and, and what he was all about. Jesus could retaliate when he was insulted. He could, he could have called down a legion of angels to, to get him off of the cross and to save him in that moment. But he willingly laid his life down in an act of obedience and trust 
to the will of the Father. Jesus stands in the middle of the mess of human history and says, I'm going to entrust my life to the will of the Father because the Father is sovereign. The Father knows. The Father has a plan. The Father has a purpose for my suffering. And so instead of retaliating, he rests in the arms of his Father and allows the plan and the purpose of God to be enacted through his suffering. And this transformed the world. And that is what Niebuhr said was the the better way. Do we entrench against? Do we become co-opted and just be run parallel with culture? Or is there a way where we can transform culture? Is there a way we can transform this world? If that is ever to happen, it is by looking to Jesus. The word that Peter uses here, he said Jesus is the pattern. He's the example. That exact word is used in Greek literature to refer to a model or a prototype. And children would put it down on a piece of paper and they would trace around it. And by tracing around this model or this prototype, they would learn their letters and their numbers, how to read and how to write. So do you see what Peter is saying? If we're going to live this good life in the pagans so that they turn from one way and embrace another, we have to look to Jesus. He's our example. He's our model. He's our prototype. And we need to trace our life around the contours of his life so that who Jesus is becomes who we are through the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's how that's going to get worked out in in our world. You see, Jesus is the pattern for our beliefs, how we make sense of the world. What is it that we believe about how the world came into being, about what God has done in Christ, about where the world is ultimately heading? This is our salvation story. This is what we believe. Jesus is at the center of that. So Jesus is the pattern for our beliefs, how we make sense of the world. And because of those beliefs, we get our sense of our, what is right and what is wrong. He's a pattern for our ethics. But friends, here's the thing about ethics. It's one thing to say what is right and wrong. It's another thing to practice it. And that is where Jesus becomes the pattern for our habits. What you believe about what is right and wrong has to be reinforced with how you spend your time, how you spend your money, and how you spend your talents. What are the habits, what are the regular rhythms in your life that reinforce what you believe and what you know to be right and wrong. And this is the work of discernment that the church has to do. We have to recognize that Jesus is the pattern for for all of that. And as you take inventory of your life, you ask yourself this question, does my beliefs, does my ethics, do my habits look like Jesus? Because if they don't look like Jesus, then the world will judge the gospel to be a fraud. But if our life together looks like Jesus, the world will say, oh, there's there's something to that. There's something significant about what those people are all about. And so this is our calling. This is what Peter would say to us as, as you work this out, that we are called to a life of truth a life of beauty, and a life of justice. This this truth 
beauty and justice, this, this perfect combination of, of what God is doing in our life, it draws people to God and it transforms our world. To be a transformer of our world, may we be this people of truth. We say what is a lie and we say what is truth. May we be a people of beauty. May we be a people that has intrinsic value and beauty that the world looks at this community of people and says, that's just a beautiful group of people. The things they do, the things they say, the the causes that, that animate their imagination, that is beautiful. I want to be a part of that. And then may we be a people that recognizes justice and injustice, what is wrong and what needs to be corrected. That kind of people will transform the world. And so as we wrap up today, I was just thinking about how historically Christians have become animated by what, what we call culture wars. And I don't have time to name all the culture wars that we've decided to fight. But they will get you fired up, won't they? They will. When you see something that's in that culture war category, you'll click on it. You'll read about it. You'll share it. You'll forward it. Man, these things, they animate our imagination because there's this, this, this vision for, for life that is so different than what we believe God is calling us to. And it gets us all fired up and it gets us all angry. And so we want to retreat to this position of Christ against culture. We've got we've to win that war. What do we have to do? What power do we have to leverage to make sure that never happens? And so while that culture war conversation is going on, Peter is saying to the church, wait, 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 Jesus is your example. And what example does Jesus leave for us? He had the, op- the opportunity to retaliate, but he rested in the arms of the Father. He entrusted his future to the sovereign care of the Father. And friends, I think that is our calling today. To not become so, so wrapped up in the things that worry us or give us anxiety or the, the culture wars that are out there. That's all a shadow mission to our real mission. The real mission is that we would be formed and shaped into the image of Christ and that we would live these lives of truth and beauty and justice in our world. And by living that life, the world would see that community of people and they would say, that's what I want to be a part of. That's a vision for life that is compelling to me. And so friends, that's our call today. And it cannot happen on our own strength. We cannot do it alone. Jesus is our example. Jesus is with us in this. Jesus is who we look to. And so I want to leave you with the prayer of St. Patrick. St. Patrick prayed this prayer, and if there is any hope for us to be this kind of people, like we have to learn to pray this prayer as well. And so we pray with St. Patrick, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every person who thinks of me, 
Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me, I arise today through a mighty strength. Who is that strength? He is Christ Jesus, our Lord. And church, let me share some good news with you. For what he's called you to do, for who he's called you to be, he is always enough. You can depend and you can trust in him.